It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Can Christians Be Cursed and Curse Others? This is part three of our multiple episodes curse series. Coming up in this episode, curses are serious things. Should we as disciples be fearful of and on our guard against curses, especially from unbelievers? Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul spoke of certain people as being cursed. What did they mean? And finally, do I as a Christian have the authority to curse someone else? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for more than 20 years. It's a privilege to be here. And Julie is also with us. Hello, gentlemen. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Mark eleven twenty one. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. The word curse is overused and undercomprehended. Cursing can mean using words that are not acceptable to repeat in public. To curse can mean to call upon a perceived otherworldly power for the purpose of harming someone or something. Cursing can also mean the expression of great disdain and loathing for people or things. In part two of our three-part series, we observed in great detail how to properly understand cursing, especially the curses of God in the Old Testament. Today, we dive into the New Testament uses of curse to find the differences and similarities with the Old. Several people, quote, cursed in the New Testament, including Jesus. What does it all mean to us here and now? Are curses real today? And if so, what do we do? So I wanted to just give a quick recap of next of last week, excuse me, part two. So some people claim that the Old Testament proves generational curses where actions of our ancestors influence our success or failure. So we examined how God warned of generational consequences from sin to his chosen people, Israel, at a specific time for a specific purpose. The idea of us having to go back and atone for the sins of our ancestors isn't biblical. And finally, we critically analyzed specific uses of several of the Hebrew words translated curse into English. Now, Rick and Jonathan, previewing today's episode in the New Testament, we're going to find the apostles taught nothing about generational curses and never warned the church about having to undo curses from our bloodline. So a lot happened in last week's episode, and it's a real strong foundation for what we're doing today. So we did want to play a few sound bites for you, and I was surprised to learn how planet-wide the belief in curses is. It's really all around us. So for example, right now we're going to start in Africa with a reading from an article called Curses Attack in an Impartial Way by Patrick N. Wachegi from the University of Nairobi. In many African communities, the fear of curses and cursing is real. A curse is a disturbing anguish in life and living. It does not matter whether one is a leader, educated or uneducated, restless youth or an elder, medicine man or a soothsayer, sorcerer or witch, polygamist or monogamist, celibate churchmen and women or laity, man endowed with virility or women blessed with fruitfulness, pauper or billionaire, a peacemaker or a peacebreaker. The underlying factor is that of a curse and cursing phobia. It is a fear which is so indispensable among many in Africans' life and living that even the Western or Eastern mainstream world religions have not managed to annihilate. It is such an incredible phenomenon whose anxiety and wonder remains. So basically they're saying you can run, but you can't hide. No matter who you are, it's going to come get you. That's disturbing, if you ask me. So, so, Jonathan, let's lay some groundwork for today's episode. Well, there's two important terms to use. Um, the terms appear in definitions over the several biblical words translated curse. The first is execrate. It means feel or express great loathing for. The other is imprecate, a spoken curse. And we talked about that last week. These words just keep appearing And so we need to understand them because they help us understand what really goes on in Scripture. So as we begin our journey today through the New Testament, we're going to start with some very Old Testament Jewish thinking regarding curses. And this is going to connect Jewish and Christian 
applications of curses. So we're in the New Testament, but we're going to look at Old, Old Testament thinking. The context here, the Apostle Paul has just been questioned by both Pharisees and Sadducees, and the end result was a heated argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about the teaching of the resurrection that Paul had focused on. This dissension was so great that Roman soldiers were called in to escort Paul out of the place for fear that they would kill him. So our account begins the morning after all of this. Jonathan, let's go to Acts 23, 12 to 14. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now, the first word for curse is anathematizo, which is a verb, and it means to declare or vow under penalty of execration. And the Thayer's English uh, lexicon says, to devote to destruction, to declares oneself liable to the severest, divinest penalties. And the second word for curse is anathema, which is a noun, and it means a religious ban or concretely excommunicated thing or person. And the Thayer's Greek English lexicon says, a thing set up or laid by in order to be kept, a thing devoted to God without hope of being uh, redeemed, or a person or thing doomed to destruction. So the words mean something offered to a god or to the god, so it can therefore no longer be used. And we use the word anathema in English to mean something or someone vehemently disliked or shunned. We want to put it away from us. Here's an example. Disrespecting the Bible is anathema to me. Um, this word is also, you may be familiar with it, because in the Catholic Church, it means the formal act of excommunicating a person. So here, the Jews in Acts vowed not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. Boy, that's a, that's a pretty strong promise that they made here. It sounds passionately harsh, and it's similar to King Saul in 1 Samuel 14, and we had discussed that in our last episode. So again, the last episode is really an important part of the groundwork. So here you have these Sadducees putting this curse upon themselves. We will, uh, may death come to us. We're not going to eat until we kill the Apostle Paul. Let's continue with the story. Now, by God's providence, the Apostle Paul's nephew heard this happening, and he reported it to the Roman guard because the plot would involve the guards to bring Paul to the place of ambush. So the guards, the Roman guards, were going to end up playing a role in this, but Paul's nephew intervenes. Let's go to Acts 23, 19 to 21. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is it that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring down Paul tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee? Well, you might not have caught the word curse, but that bound with an oath, that's anathematizo again, the verb meaning to declare oneself liable to the severest divine penalties devoted to destruction. So you have this strong desire to make sure Paul dies. That's really what's happening here. So the captain of the Roman guard reports in and assembles 200 armed men and animals for, for Paul to, to escape on and for Paul's protection so he could be brought before Felix the governor. So they are prepared not to comply with the ambush, but to subvert it and protect Paul because he's a Roman citizen. So you got to look at this and say, okay, what worked here? Did the swearing, passionate promises that the Sadducees did work? Or did God's providence prevail? Well, God's providence rules over swearing vengeance. Uh, I wonder if the 40 men followed through with starving to death since God protected Paul. Yeah, you, you wonder about <laughs> did, that. Did they keep the oath? Yeah. Probably not. Probably not. because and, and here's the thing about this. And folks, see if this rings true in, in your mind about how all of this works. When we get to that swearing, these passionate promises, these oaths, what we're doing is we're, 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 we're making an attempt to legitimize our emotions. Think about that. 
Our emotions get so big and so strong that we say, and I swear by this or that, that this will happen. And what is this? It's a bunch of emotion. Let's think about that because we're going to need to come back to that later. Now, let's go to another example of dramatic thinking and proclaiming and, and these oaths that are very serious. This time, let's go to the Apostle Peter when he's denying Jesus before Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew 26, 73 to 75. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the word for curse here means to imprecate, to speak a curse. And the Thayer's English lexicon says to declare oneself liable to the severest divine penalties. So then he began to curse. This takes this Greek word takes the word anathematizo and makes it stronger. It adds a little word in front of it. So it's stronger and more dramatic. And it's only used once in the Bible here in Matthew 26, 74. And the thing is, Peter is so emotional because he is so afraid that he, and you know, when you read this, you say he began to curse. Sometimes we think, well, he began to say bad words, but this was much deeper than that. He was making this over-the-top emotional promise before God, I don't know the man, may I be liable to whatever God brings. Yeah. So it is really an, an, an effort to legitimize emotion, and Peter fell into that, and of course he went out and wept bitterly afterwards. Yeah, he's blurting out in the passion of the moment. Right. So in the uh, CQ Rewind show notes for this episode, we're going to include details of all nine Greek words translated into English as curse. The English is so imprecise when it comes to this. The show notes are at christianquestions.com and on our Christian Questions app. Sign up at the website to receive the weekly rewinds as soon as they are ready. So we're looking at the words for curse so far in the New Testament, and we've just, just scratched the surface from a very Jewish thinking perspective. And again, remember, Jesus' teachings are going to be built upon Jewish thinking and Jewish teaching of the Old Testament. So Jonathan, let's clarify biblical curses thus far. One dramatic application of a New Testament curse is all about proclaiming one's position on an issue. As Christians, we are to be above such drama and stand for God's will and righteousness through Jesus. We can't get involved in all of the overt emotions in trying to state a position. Just be a person of conviction. So far, one thing is certain. Whatever we do or feel, we should never carelessly promise anything before God. How did curses fit into the teachings of Jesus? Did he ever curse anyone? Did he teach us to curse anyone? The Old Testament was a foundation for Jesus' teachings. Based on part two of our series, we know that it did not give anyone the authority to curse others and that curses from God were an expression from God of loathing and disdain, often with consequences for sin attached. So, why would we expect something different in the New Testament? It's built upon the old. So let's go back to a quick soundbite. While we think the fear of curses is limited to only remote villages where Christianity isn't prevalent, it's very much alive in places like the United States. This next reading is from an article in the Washington Post about taking rocks from the Gettysburg National Military Park in Pennsylvania. An unnamed man returned three small stones that he and his wife had picked up 10 or 11 years ago. Fairly quickly after that visit, he said, Our lives fell apart. My wife took my son and walked out on me. I lost my house and the majority of what I owned and ended up in jail for nine years. My now ex-wife has fared no better. She has been plagued with health problems and other issues. He goes on to say that after he was released from prison, he searched through boxes of his belongings his mother had saved for him. That was where he found the three souvenirs from Gettysburg. He recalled reading somewhere that they were cursed. I'm sorry that we had taken them, he wrote. So 
So that's the reason why he had so many problems, the three rocks. Now, there's many curse legends like that here in the United States, including there's taking lava off rocks from Hawaii and rocks from the Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. And just a quick story. My husband and I recently moved. And within a week, the dryer stopped working. The bathroom sink clogged. The shower wouldn't stop dripping. And the toilet overflowed. And my husband blurted out, this place is cursed. (laughs) And of course it isn't. And I knew what he meant. But the idea is so ingrained in our culture that we instinctively attribute anything that goes wrong to a curse. We do. And we shouldn't. Because it is actually disrespectful to the Father. That's really what this all boils down to from Scripture. So let's now focus on Jesus and his teachings. That's what this segment is really going to be looking into. And of course, we have to lay some groundwork first. After Jesus caused an uproar by saying he came from the Father and that those who came to him would have a river of living water flow from them, the Pharisees were a little bit upset. Uh, And they questioned their representatives who had been listening in. See, they sent these representatives with the instructions, go listen to the man and bring him to us. And so these representatives were listening, and they are the officers spoken of in these next verses. John, uh, Jonathan, let's go to John 7, 45 to 49. Let's do 45 and 46 first. The officers, the Pharisees' representatives, then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So we pause there for a moment because you have these these representatives who were sent to bring Jesus before the Pharisees, and yet they hear him speak and think, wait a minute, this man's different. He's special. There's something very powerful about him. So they didn't bring him. And so here's the Pharisees' reaction. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also believed, been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And Rick and Julie, that word for accursed means imprecated, meaning speaking a curse that is execrable. Hopefully I got that one right. Meaning extremely bad or unpleasant. And the Greek word here is a combination of words, literally upon plus cursed, thus under a curse, doomed to punishment. So... Go ahead, Julie. Well, when it says this crowd is accursed, the Pharisees had contempt for anyone who should have known what the law said. And that's the Pharisees version of what the law says. It's like they're saying this Sabbath breaker could not be the Messiah. So whoever's falling for what Jesus is teaching is ignorant. God relies on us to teach the people. And if you don't listen to us, then you are cursed, separated from God. Now, they were talking about the Jews under the law. And of course, there was the, 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 the consequences of not obeying the law, but they grossly misrepresented it. This misrepresented that. This, this clearly exposed the Pharisees as the egocentric group that they were. Listen to us or listen to nobody is basically what they were saying. To look at their fellow Jews, those whom they were called upon to shepherd and to label their own, quote, sheep, as loathed and rejected of God speaks volumes about their sense of entitlement, for they were also not following the law. And Jesus told them that countless times. And they would have debates, and they'd try to trap Jesus, and he'd always speak the law to them, and they couldn't answer. So there's this egocentric approach, and they're saying, all these piddly little people, well, they're accursed because they're not following the law. They're not like us. So you've got the word, another word for cursed in the New Testament here as the Pharisees expressing it toward the average individual in the Jewish community. So this is where we're starting. This is the viewpoint of the average people. Now let's look at Jesus' teaching on cur- on, and how he uses words for curse in the New Testament. Let's first go to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're all familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you know the Beatitudes, but it's a whole lot more than that. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs us as to how to handle those who wish us serious harm. We're going to go to Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, 
For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And by the way, he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the commandment was never taught to hate your enemy. This is what the Pharisees turned it into. We are to love, bless, do good, and pray for our enemies. And it's interesting, the word curse here that Jesus used is the word that means to execrate, a loathing for, and by analogy, to doom. So when you said, uh, when you read, bless them that curse you, the construction of this Greek word, kataromai, means to literally call a curse down upon someone. So this idea is to invoke evil on someone by appealing to a supernatural power to inflict harm. This shows what humans, that they can try to curse us. This is that actual, I think, magical curse, like a hex or a jinx. So what do we make of this? Well, when Jesus is talking about this, notice he's saying that there are those who are not going to look kindly upon you. And he tells, just like Jonathan said, he tells us four things, love, bless, uh, pray, uh, and do good. So people have their ways of dealing with things. And when we don't like someone or something, depending on your culture, depending on where you come from, depending on tradition, depending on what you're taught, will depend on how you express your disdain. And for some people, it can go as far as, oh, I want you to, you know, to, to, to step on the cracks of the sidewalk and wonder, walk under every ladder and break your leg. You know, that kind of a thing. This, this sense of, of overt wishing for evil. And that can be a part of this. There's no question. It could also simply be people who just just don't like you and want you to just not do well. So it, I think it covers a variety of things. The point that Jesus is making, he's making the point that when someone is acting like that towards you, you love them, you bless, you do good, and you pray. Jesus leaves no room for wishing or for planning for harm to anyone. So whatever it is they throw at you, you act like me. What would Jesus do? That's the lesson here. Let's go on to the next example. Jesus, in Matthew 15, is answering the Pharisees. <laughs> He's answering them again when they complained about his disciples eating with unwashed hands. Again, this is about the law. And here's what he says, Matthew 15, verses 3 to 4. But he answered and said unto them, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commandeth, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. And that word for curseth means to revile. See, now that was an easy one. We're not doing the execrate and the dooming and the loathing. To revile is to criticize in an insulting manner. While this word is not as deep as the one that, Juliet you just previously explained in Matthew 5, uh, it's certainly in the same family. Jesus is reminding all of us of the godliness of respect, and he's reminding us that the law said, honor your father and mother. And if you revile, if you criticize them in an insulting manner, that was a serious crime in the Jewish law. That's what he's talking about here. Well, my wife and I had the responsibility and privilege of having three of our parents live with us in their later years. For my parents, they were out of state in a situation where they were neglected by someone who was supposed to be caring for them. Many are not in the situation to care for parents in their home, but there are ways to respect and be responsible for elderly parents. As the scripture said, we are to honor our father and mother. So, so far, we haven't seen any examples of Jesus or the apostles cursing anyone in the way that we would think of cursing today, you know, like a magical spell. But I have one for you. What about the cursing of the fig tree? This uses the Greek word kataromai, meaning to literally call a curse down from heaven upon someone or something. This account is in Matthew eleven twelve 12 to 23. Oh, I'm sorry, Mark. It's actually in Mark eleven twelve 12 to 23. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he began hungry, saying at a dis at a distance a fig. I'm sorry, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, "May no one eat fruit from you again." And his disciples were listening. Now let's jump to verse nineteen to twenty-three. 
When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whosoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Now, let's be very clear here. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. Okay, so we have this fig tree in representation of the nation of Israel. It's a lot of scriptural evidence for that. So what has happened here? Why does Jesus do this to this tree? Because it was not even the season for figs. Jesus, by the power of God's Spirit within him, actually did wither that tree. No question about it. It was the power of God working through him. Why would he do that? Well, let's think about the context. The previous day, he had victoriously ridden into Jerusalem. That's what we call Palm Sunday. He had ridden into Jerusalem, and all seemed poised for victory, and there were literally hundreds of thousands of people out there, the, the Jewish nation, and, and, and Jesus was, was, was showing Israel that they did have life. Remember, this fig tree had leaves, but no fruit, and he's using it as an example as what happened the day before. There was life there. They're proclaiming him, the son of David. But yet that proclamation would not produce fruit. For one week later, less than a week later, different people, but the cry instead of Hosanna to the son of David, the cry was then crucify him, crucify him. So he's showing, graphically showing, that this fig tree, Israel, had life. It had leaves, but it would not produce fruit, and it would wither. That's why he did this, to graphically show what was happening. This small miracle was proclaiming a very big prophecy of very strong consequences in the fulfilling of the will of God. Well, that makes sense. So this was by the miraculous power of God's Spirit, and we have to think about this. You know, there's a lot of things that Jesus could do because he was Jesus. <laughs> you know, we don't get that same power. We can't read people's minds or hearts, and we can't raise people from the dead. So we're supposed to follow in his footsteps, but we don't have his feet. So I think we'd agree this is a real curse as we know it today, but we have to keep it in context and recognize its purpose was an example, not for evil, right? Okay, okay. right, for the most part. It, it is a real curse, but let's be careful with that word, because when we say that word, we think magic, we think voodoo, we think wishing evil. That's not the curse of the Old Testament, and that's not what happened here. It is the consequences issued by God's justice. That's what a, a, an official curse was, in, the, in, in Scripture. That's what we're looking at. So there's a difference. Yes, it was a real curse, but please let's not confuse it with the mess of all of these other things. And, and you know, just a, a, a quick point, because as, as we're going through this, we were talking about what Jesus said earlier, bless them that curse you. Uh, Trish just dropped me a note. She said, well, they curse you. Does that mean they can hurt you? And the answer is no, they can't. They can't hurt you with whatever their curse is. Why? We're going to get to that in very specific detail later on. But just understand, we stand in a different place, and we have to understand what this, these words mean to really get where we're going. One final reference here, Jesus' final reference to curses in his earthly ministry was the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, 31 through 33. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, I strongly recommend listening to episode 760 called, Are You a Sheep or a Goat? You can just type the episode number in the search bar at christianquestions.com or on your CQ app. There's a lot of detail to this parable of the sheep and goats that just dropping in here while talking about curses won't explain. So I want to give you uh, just a little bit about the time period. After everyone is resurrected in the kingdom, at the end of the thousand years of time when Satan is bound and the world is rehabilitated, this parable describes the end part of the day of judgment, which is, of course, a period of time and not a 24-hour day. The sheep and the goats 
symbolically describe a final separation, a final judgment of those who ultimately reject God. And so now we go to Matthew 25, 41 and 42, and here's what the judgment looks like in picture language. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been been prepared for you for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. So accursed here is kataromai, kataromai, to call down a curse from a supernatural power. This is the hardcore one. How does that fit? Well, this is a final judgment. And these are individuals who are choosing to be disobedient and therefore choosing to forfeit life. And you can't get more strong a forfeiting than to be separated from God to the point of death. This, the, the loathed here are those who, after resurrection and reconciliation, like you said before, Julie, have chosen to follow the treachery of Satan, because that's where Satan's going to utter destruction. They chose death, utter destruction. What better symbol of destruction is there than that of fire? Hellfire is how many Christian denominations vilify God. Only sinful men could come up with this heinous scenario. They distort and misrepresent who God really is, a God of love. So this idea of being accursed is being separated from God as as far as you can, and the ultimate end result is utter destruction. Yes, that is a, quote, curse. It's a consequence from God. When God issues a curse, it's a just consequence, and that's what this death picture is is. So Jonathan, let's clarify biblical curses here in this segment. Jesus was specific when it came to curses. Bless, don't curse, build up, and don't loathe even your enemies. His only usage of the loathing of curses were related to those who rejected God. First, the Jewish nation, who would later find favor, and those who rejected his resurrection and their reconciliation. So Jesus uses curses specifically and in a godly fashion to represent consequences. It is so important to realize the care with which Jesus used the words for curse. No over-the-top emotion, just God's judgment. What are the Apostle Paul's messages and interpretations regarding curses? Does he curse others? All right, now to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say about curses, and his instruction proves invaluable to our clear understanding of what they are and how they apply to Christians. We will begin with Paul and his unmistakable love for the Jewish nation and their role in God's plan of salvation through Jesus. So now in this segment, it comes down to focusing in on the Apostle Paul. But first, Julie, where are we going next in the world? Yeah, we're going to first check in on curses in Brazil. Brooms have power in Brazil. It is said that if someone accidentally sweeps over your feet with a broom, you'll remain single for the rest of your life. Immediately spitting on the broom is said to break the curse. But if you receive an unwanted visitor, putting the broom behind the front door will make them leave. Who knew? Yeah. (laughs) I really, really... Who knew? It's, it's, just, it's just fascinating to see what happens when a tradition and a superstition takes hold and how it becomes part of culture. And in many cases, we don't even question it. Well, we're here to question it because we're examining it according to Scripture. Let's look at the Apostle Paul. Paul's loyalty to his Jewish brethren is absolutely inspiring to the point where he was feeling like giving up his own favor and privilege for the sake of his Jewish brethren who were out of God's favor. Romans 9, 1-3 expresses this. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And this word is anathema. And we talked about that in the first segment, meaning excommunicated away from God. And the Thayer's Greek English lexicon says it's a thing devoted to God without hope or being redeemed. So Paul's intentionally dramatic, trying to get their attention in an emotional, poetic way, like, I would throw myself off a mountain for your sake. 
Yeah, and, and that, that's the thing. He's doing it to make a point. And if you remember earlier, the, the Sadducees were doing it because they were serious. There's a big difference between using this kind of language to make a point, sort of sarcasm, sarcastically, versus saying, I'm taking this oath of, of, of sure death before God or something like that. So it's, we understand the right way to do things in the wrong way. Next, let's go to another example. Paul, in our next example, acknowledges the Jewish nation's disloyalty to the law and the resulting just consequences from God. Let's look at Galatians 3, 10 to 14. We'll take this, Jonathan, in several pieces. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So you've got this verse, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 27. And last week we talked about Deuteronomy 27, the long list of blessings and a long list of curses. Paul is going back there, and he's reminding the Jewish people, he's reminding actually the Christians, of the plight of they didn't listen, and they suffered dramatically just as God said they would. They suffered, not a curse, it says a cursed, but it means consequences. They suffered just consequences for what they did. Then Paul uses the truth of the nation being loathed by God, because that's what those words for curse means, is to be loathed by God. He uses the truth of that nation being loathed to build the case for faith. Verses 11 and 12 of Galatians 3. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So Paul continues, okay, I'm saying now there's another Old Testament verse that says the just shall live by faith. And the law, though, is not about faith. So that brings the question, well, if they were supposed to live according to the law, but the just live by faith and not by, not by works, then what is that faith supposed to be in? He's building a reasoning. Let's go to verse uh, 13 and 14 of Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So he's talking about the curse. And again, last week, in our last, in our last episode two of the Curses series, we dealt with this in great, great detail. The law brought difficulty because imperfection didn't fulfill the law. And Paul says, Jesus took that upon himself and that's where our faith can come, because he, he bought it. By Jesus taking the loathing and disdain of God for sinful humanity onto himself, he bought the right to be the promised seed of Abraham. And Jonathan, just a few verses later, what does it say? Well, and before that, Rick, um, remember, the promise to Abraham says, in thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Right. Jesus is that promised seed, and it's identified just a little further in verse 16. So Jesus becomes the promised seed. So Paul in Galatians 3 is saying, look, Israel lived by the law. Didn't work out so well because they didn't live up to it. They are loathed by God. We can live by faith because Jesus paid the price. And so he's re replacing the works of the law with living by faith in Jesus. That's what he's showing us. And he's using the word for curse to show the loathing of God against sin. And that is always a just consequence. Next example. Paul also spoke of curses as related to his Christian brethren. Being accursed appears at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians. Now remember, when he wrote to the Corinthians the first time, they were in bad shape. He had strongly corrected them in this letter, in this epistle. He did that correction with love, and he did it with authority. And the ending of 1 Corinthians reflects the authority and the firmness. Let's, Jonathan, let's go to 1 Corinthians 16, 21 and 22. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. And Maranatha is an exclamation of the approaching divine judgment. The Thayer's Greek English lexicon says, Our Lord cometh or will come. So the King James Version doesn't translate uh, the word for a curse. So it reads, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, 
Maranatha. And Paul's basically saying, you know, if you don't love Jesus enough to follow the spiritual guidance that I've put in front of you for your own well-being, there's nothing more I can do than let Jesus judge you when he comes. You're in his hands now. So this isn't a hex kind of curse. This is a separating. He's not cursing someone forever. And it doesn't mean that we get to curse someone who we don't think doesn't love Jesus enough. That would be a misapplication of scripture. So we're looking at these applications and we're seeing that it all fits in with the justice and the consequences of God Almighty. There's nothing magical. There's nothing personal. It's all about God's plan. And you know what? For some of you, this might be disappointing. It's like you look at this and say, oh, man, you mean it's not as dramatic? And the answer is no, it's not, but it is scriptural. And that's what we want. We want to hold on to the scriptures and, 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 and understand words through how they're defined in scripture. And the idea of cursing in scripture is very different, very different than the other things that we see. Let's go to another example. In the book of Galatians, in, in, in the first chapter, Paul is firm in his stance, He's firm a lot. In this time, it's relating to the purity, the purity of preaching the gospel. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, even now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That's anathema, separated out from God's favor, a person doomed to destruction. Bottom line, the Apostle Paul is saying, keep false teaching out of the gospel. That's right. He is very firm, and he's saying that if you engage in false teaching, the consequence from God Almighty is not pleasant. It's not happy. It's not a good place to be. You want to not do that, and he repeats it. So it's not like he's just saying it once. He's making a point. The gospel is pure. Our responsibility is to maintain its purity. The consequence for not maintaining its purity is to be pushed aside by God. And that is not, that is not a thing we wanted to do. Paul is clear, subverting the gospel in the name of Jesus places one as a subject of God's judgment. Make no mistake here. Last example. Paul expands this depth of loathing. Remember, curse, execration means loathing. This loathing by God in the book of Hebrews with some of his most sober writing. And this goes very deep into the uh, consequences of walking away from God after being blessed. Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So you have the qualifications, the good parts, that tasted of the heavenly gift, been makers, partakers of the Holy Spirit. That means the Spirit is, has, has been dwelling within you. If you walk away from those, he says it's impossible to come back because you have been so blessed. Your mind has been so opened. You've been given God's very influence. You've, you've, you've rejected God and Christ. It is an irrecoverable choice to reject Jesus and the gospel if, now here's the big if, if you have been begotten by God's Holy Spirit. And I want to say here, that most of Christianity has no clue about what being begotten by God's Holy Spirit is. I just want to put that out there. When you're going to church on Sunday, there's not spirit begettle there. There's a lot of emotion. Spirit begettle is a very serious, different kind of thing. So we want to stress that if you have dedicated yourself and been accepted by God and you walk away from that, you have committed a sin by choice that is irrecoverable. Paul then uses a striking example of ground found useless for cultivating. Let's go to verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews 6. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Well, remember, when we talked about the final judgment of the sheep and the goats, this is the same word meaning completely out of God's favor. 
And that's the point. When we have been so blessed with God's favor that he has actually given us his spirit. He doesn't give his spirit to someone who can't handle it. Okay? He, he won't do that. But if, if we have rejected that, th- there's, a, there's a deep consequence. And this is sobering. We have to live up to the responsibilities that we have. But the deep, con- the deep consequence is what the Bible describes as second death. Yes. It's not eternal torture. It's right. not flames. It's, it's you cease to exist. Exactly. And look, there is no greater punishment than to not have life in the eternity of God. There's just no greater punishment. Jonathan, clarifying biblical curses here. Paul expresses the seriousness of curses, of loathing, by reminding us of their application to Israel rejecting the law and Jesus. He also applies loathing to the brotherhood as a warning to stay pure and as a dire warning for those who would walk away from their enlightenment. In all cases, curses are just and godly consequences, no more and no less. And we have to keep them where they belong in a scriptural meaning. So, seeing the depth and seriousness of God's curses should wake us up to the responsibilities of our Christian lives. What's the bottom line for us? How should we as Christians handle the whole concept of curses? When facing all of the evil and treacherous things in our world, we need to cling to Christianity's true power. Being a Christian is far beyond loving Jesus, showing up for church, and knowing a few Bible verses. True Christianity guides, protects, and changes our lives through the power of God's Spirit. And make no mistake, it comes through the power of God's Spirit, which is a gift of grace from God through Jesus. So we have one last soundbite, and Haiti has been in the news so much lately. So we're going to take one final look at curses around the world, recognizing that we could have made an entire podcast episode highlighting the globe because this concept is so prevalent. The day after at least 230,000 people lay dead and dying beneath the rubble from an earthquake that struck Haiti in January 2010, American televangelist Pat Robertson famously stated the earthquake occurred because Haiti and its people are cursed. He said this was a result of a pact that the Haitian people made with the devil centuries ago to gain their freedom from the French. In 2021, another major earthquake and flooding caused devastation, and the president of Haiti was assassinated. Over the years, the idea that Haiti is cursed in part because of its cultural and religious practices has proliferated, due in part to the religion known as voodoo, or Haitian voodoo. Haitian voodoo blends African spiritual beliefs with Catholicism, Today, many Haitian Protestants view voodoo as a satanic religion responsible for Haiti's underdevelopment, poverty, corruption, and repeated natural disasters. A slave revolt in 1791 sparked the Haitian Revolution from the French after a voodoo spiritual ceremony. Enslaved Africans armed with machetes began beating drums, chanting, and marching from plantation to plantation, killing, looting, and burning the sugarcane fields. Beginning with 12,000 followers, the revolt quickly blossomed into the largest, bloodiest slave uprising in history. By the end of September that year, over a thousand plantations had been burned and hundreds of white people had been killed. And of course, we know that Haiti's problems are so much deeper than just saying it's cursed. You know, there's different corruption and racism and all kinds of issues uh, that, to, that that has caused the poverty. Um, but it's not being cursed because of the voodoo religion. You know, and it's certainly and what Pat Robertson said is is a heinous misrepresentation of God Almighty. Let's just make it clear to say that God has cursed that people because is ridiculous and has nothing to do with Scripture and with Christianity. End of statement. Let's now go to some further questions here, Julie. Yeah, so we want to finish this three-part series. We've worked hard on this (laughs) with some final questions, just to make sure we've got this right. Did the disciples of Jesus believe in generational curses? The account we want to talk about is found in the entire chapter of John, but we're going to read just the first three scriptures of John 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, 
but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So you see what the problem is. They're thinking, well, what caused this? Was it his sin or was it the sin of his parents? That's generational sin, right? No, <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not. And, and here, here's the thing. And, and you know, this is, this is another misrepresentation of Scripture. This Scripture is actually very simple. And let me just say, if your only tool is a hammer, then you view every problem as a nail. And those of us who proclaim that God curses these and those and this and that and the other thing, their only tool is a hammer. So every problem is going to be a nail. That's not what this verse is saying. This is not anything to do with generational curse. The, 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 the Jews of the time truly believed that when you sin, there were consequences. That's not a curse. That's a just response. And this is not generational. If, if you sin, it, it could show up in your children. It's that simple. It's not like three, four, five, six generations later. So they're taking the consequence of sin and painting it into a curse. And it just is not appropriate in Scripture. So no, this is not a representation of God cursing generations. Far from it. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, no. He says, this is for the glory of God. Now, why would he say that? Because all sin, all sickness, all death, eventually will show the glory of God. Because the glory of God cancels every bit of it. And Jesus is using it as an example for us to see something bigger. So that's that. Oh, okay. Um, so we don't see that same operation of that third and fourth generation we talked about last week right. outside the law as we move into Christianity, into the New Testament. Okay, so I've got another question. Did the apostle Paul, we just talked about him, did he place a curse on Bar-Jesus? Bar-Jesus was a Jewish magician and false prophet who was actively hindering the gospel message. We pick up his account in Acts 13, 9 through 12. And just a side note, another name for Bar-Jesus in the scriptures is Elymas. But Saul, who also was known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So what happened here? This is not a curse. This is a judgment upon somebody who was standing in the way of the gospel. No curse, just a miraculous judgment that showed the power of God over satanic influence. Paul would not allow the gospel to be hindered by such a man. And the Holy Spirit provoked him, obviously. God's influence provoked him to stop the evil so he could continue. It kind of sounds like he was given a spiritual timeout to yes. go and you know <laughs> sit up and think about what he did. And it kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul himself. He was blinded for three days after seeing the resurrected Jesus, and he needed to sit and rethink his life. Yeah, and obviously this is not a curse because it was for a, for a time. It was to make him stop and consider. It was a blessing, is what it was. And again, people who were looking for the nail, because they have a hammer, are going to find a curse wherever they look. It just doesn't fit. So our decisions, when we think, when we act, when we react, our decisions should be made with clear thinking, not like we've been talking about, clear thinking, not with heated passion. Jesus explains this in Matthew 5, 34 to 37. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Just take a stand for truth and godly righteousness and be done with it. All of this over-the-top emotion and all of these oaths and things are not according to God's will. Simple as that. The damaging, loathing things that we say are not curses. They're not these magical voodoo things that happen, but they are results of sinful thoughts and words. And we have to understand this can happen within us. 
we can get into the wrong frame of mind. James is really good in explaining this in James 3, 7 to 11. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? So that cursing here is that kataromai calling down a supernatural power to inflict harm on someone. And we've got to live up to the standards of being Christian. We have no authority to be wishing evil on any level on anyone else. And in fact, here we're charged with loving them and praying for them instead. That's difficult when someone has wronged you. It's different. It is difficult. But James says, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Wake up. Look what you're called to. Stand up. Be mature. Do the right thing. Stop it. I mean, that's, that's a very parental approach to this. But that's what we need to do. Get out of all of that mess and think righteously and clearly. But if that's true, what about what the apostles tried to do? When they were insulted by others, they sought to harm them who hurt them. That's in Luke 9, 54 to 56. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So, yes, the apostles did say, hey, should we call fire down? As if they could. I mean, think about that for a moment, because it's an illusion. Well, they must have thought they could. They were powerful. Well, they figured Jesus would give them the powerful, right, give them the right. power, that is. And it's an illusion back to Elijah. But Jesus rebuked them, and they went on to another village. No, it's not appropriate. That's not the way things go. On the contrary, when under the weight of trial, when being maligned and all of that kind of thing, let's not see curses, but the providence of God. Jesus saw it as the providence of God to move on. Why don't we follow in his footsteps? Hey, that's a really good idea. And, and, and let's look at the other side of this now, the, the positive side, James 5, 10 and 11. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So what do you say to the person who emailed us at inspiration at christianquestions.com and said, I've been cursed. I want to get back all the blessings that have been taken from me. There's a lot. We've, we've said a lot over three programs here, three episodes. But let me, let me give you a personal example. All right. Let me give you an example. And, 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 and folks, I believe, I truly believe that I am the most blessed person I know. I, I believe that. I, I can, I'll argue with anybody because I believe God has blessed me much, much more than I could ever deserve. But in light of that blessing, when you go back over several years in my life, my son was unjustly expelled from high school for a year. We know it was unjust because a few years later, the school board actually apologized. A few years after that, my daughter at age 15 was raped. A few years after that, our other daughter uh, had went to work, bought a condo. It burned down. It burned down. She had to come and live with us. A few years after that, my wife, who works at a bank, was robbed twice in 13 days by the same person and suffered from PTSD. A couple of years after that, my daughter, remember the condo that burned? Well, she got married, got a house, and a tree fell on it. And so she and her husband had to come live with us. A few, a few years after that, a tornado came through our neighborhood and, and tore trees down all around our house. It looked like a war zone. Two years after that, another tornado came through our town and destroyed my office. I am the most blessed person I know because God's hand and providence was in every one of those experiences, and we grew and we learned, and by God's grace, we're here. So that's what I say to somebody who says, I've been cursed. I say, maybe, maybe God's providence is blessing you, and you're just not looking. We often get what we look for. So let's remember that. We can't look at the difficulties in our lives as curses. It's not a Christian approach. No, it's not. It absolutely isn't. 
Wow. So are there real curses in our world, you know, outside of what the Bible describes as loathing or separation? Are there things that happen by the powers of darkness? Yes, 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 there are absolutely. And we need to always remember that the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus thoroughly overrides demonic influence. And a powerful example of this is when Jesus cast out the legion, quote-unquote, of demons from one man. Now, we're going to read this account, and it is very dramatic. We're going to focus on just some very specific details. Mark, It always five, gives me goosebumps, just letting you know. Yeah, no, this, is, this is a big account. Mark 5, 6 to 13. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do you have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? implore you by God, do not torment me. Well, Rick, the word for torment means touchstone. So the fallen angels were saying, don't test us before the time, before the judgment. Continuing, for he had been saying to him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country, meaning space or territory. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. Okay. There's a lot to this account. We're going to focus on just a couple of details. The details are there was a legion. There were many demons at work here. And when Jesus comes on the scene, they say, they beg him, don't test us before the time. Now, who's stronger? It's Jesus. And they beg him, don't send us out of this territory. Don't send us out of this place, please. Who's stronger, the demons or Jesus? It's Jesus. And then it says, Jesus gave them permission to go into the, de- in, in, into the swine. So the point of this is the darkness of this world is bigger than us. It's stronger than us, but it's not stronger than our Lord Jesus. He has ultimate power, and he showed it way back then as a man who was begotten by God's Spirit. Imagine now in his glorified state. We rely on the power of Jesus by using the tools that God has given us to be safe and to be victorious as we face these kinds of foes that are beyond our abilities. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are overmatched. Make no mistake about that. We are overmatched, and we cannot barely survive unless we use the armor of God in a godly and righteous way. And that's why it says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of, not you, in the strength of his might, arm yourself, and God will protect you. This is how we avoid all of those things. As we wrap this up, the end result of sin and curses, we've talked about curses now for for three episodes. What's the end result of all of this? The end result is very clearly spoken in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. There will no longer be any curse. Why? Because Jesus bought the human race. Jesus' life death and resurrection, put it all back in order. And what we will see at that point, when we look back on all of the darkness that humankind has had to go through, is we will see the blessing of the experience and see life unfold eternally without the darkness and without the curse. So let's wrap this up. Clarifying biblical curses, what have we learned in this three-part series. What have we gleaned from all of these verses and all of this thinking and all of this study? Well, first of all, we have seen that in all of Scripture, 
There's no evidence that humans are given authority or power to curse others. None. Next, specific family lines are not cursed. If you think that, think again. It's not scriptural. Next, when God cursed someone or something, it was an expression of his loathing for sin. There are always fair, just consequences attached to these loathings. Not some magical thing, justice. Next, biblical prophecies of future consequences were not magical curses. They were God's plan unfolding according to his providence. Next, powerful demonic forces exist that can influence humankind to do evil things. Living a life doing the will of God by following in the footsteps of Jesus is our best protection. As Christians, let's hold to these truths and forcefully reject all other ideas. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions in this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, am I passionate or complacent about Jesus? Jesus.